Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemog podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. In today's episode, we're going to delve into metastatic cancer of origin to be determined, as opposed to cancer of unknown primary, because that in itself is its own thing. But, you know, as I'm seeing more and more on consults, and maybe guys, you'll agree, this question of, you know, what do you biopsy, what additional testing do you send comes up quite often when I'm on solid uh, oncology consults. And so I'm glad that we're talking about this today. I definitely think it's necessary. I don't know when I was in residency, I had really no good framework of what to do when somebody came in with a CT scan that showed concern for cancer that spread everywhere. And I think I think the listeners are going to think to themselves, why are they calling this metastatic cancer of origin TBD? Seems weird, but, but trust us, carcinoma of unknown primary is a different thing, which we'll talk about later. Before we do start, though, I'm just going to publicly state that I'm super jealous of the recent invitation that was extended, I guess, technically to the both of us by Dan uh, to Vivek and I over to his house. I unfortunately couldn't make it, but it turns out Dan is quite the chef and quite the connoisseur of wines. (laughs) I'm learning anyway. You made a huge mistake, Ronak. You you made a huge mistake. (laughs) Well, we'll make up for it. All right, guys. Well, let's let's jump into this episode. I'm really excited to present this to our to our listeners today. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started on our metastatic cancer of origin TBD. Hey, guys. How's it going? Doing good. Doing good. Uh, as we mentioned in the intro, I D- Dan had me and my fiance over for wine and and this delicious tacos, and we were we were watching the Super Bowl too, and just the best Super Bowl halftime show ever. So couldn't be happier yeah. right now. I watched it again. As soon as I found out I was available for streaming on uh, you know Apple Music or whatever, I, I, I've watched it maybe three or four times now. It was just oh, so good. I was on an airplane during all of that. So the only updates about the game that I was getting was via our pilot getting updates from air traffic control. It was pretty, pretty legit. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's perfect. So, uh <laughs> So guys, I wanted to kind of pick your brains today about a question that I've been getting quite a bit on solid oncology consults. I wanted to kind of, you know, discuss with you kind of your approach to some of these questions. And again, this comes up so often, probably at least once or twice a day on this rotation. I'm really just looking for some guidance. So I've got a case for you to kind of kick things off and then maybe we can kind of work through this a little bit. Sounds good to me. Yeah, let's do it. So... You know, the other day I had uh, um, a consult that was given to me of a 55-year-old male who is has a long history of tobacco use disorder, who had presented with a cough and unintentional weight loss of 35 pounds over the last two months. He underwent a chest x-ray in the emergency room that was indicative of a right upper lobe mass. He also had mentioned that he was having episodes of syncope when he was on his way to the ER. So he ended up getting a CTA of his chest, which thankfully for him didn't show a pulmonary embolism, but did confirm the presence of a a right upper lobe mass that was measured to be about 4.5 centimeters in diameter. And he also had some mediastinal adenopathy. 
And so he was admitted to the hospital for the workup of the mass and syncope. And, you know, as the fellow on call on, on Solid Ankh during the daytime right now, I got the question of, okay, well, this guy has a mass. Now what? Can you guys help us kind of work through this? So here I am looking to you all. What is your general approach to, to a console question like this? What do you do? Well, you know, it's tempting when you're on the oncology service, especially as a, as a fellow, you're busy. And I'm sure that some of our internal medicine resident listeners will, will have heard this response, but something like, call me back when you know what kind of tumor this is. But in truth, you know, we oncologists, we don't like to share this, but we do actually know how to work up tumors too. So I, I think we can provide some guidance here. I'd, I'd love the way you said that, Dan, because I think also it's really easy when you're an oncology fellow to get this consult and just be like, we need the tissue. And I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has heard this before. Get us the tissue and then we'll see the patient. But we're really going to walk you through why there's many times where we should be involved and we'll walk you through the way to work this thing up. So the way that I like to think about it, whenever I see a patient who has a mass that's either incidentally found on imaging or you're looking for that mass because you're concerned about cancer and the clinical history fits, the most important thing to me is one, figuring out what cancer are we dealing with? And then two, figuring out exactly where has the cancer gone? What stage are we in? And we think about cancers, we talk about this staging. And that essentially means how big is the cancer? That's one variable. Are lymph nodes involved? That's another variable. And has it spread outside of the primary spite or regional lymph nodes? And those are the important things. So bottom line is, we definitely need to get the stage of this. And there's some labs that you can get initially. Dan, what do you what do you usually think of when you're thinking about labs? I know that labs aren't really the end all be all because again, we always talk about getting that tissue. Yeah, I think that it's it's always important. And I'm putting a plug as the you know the benign hematologist among us here. You got to get a CBC. Oftentimes, these patients may have blood cell count abnormalities, and if you're concerned for a solid tumor and you see evidence either on a peripheral smear or on CBC that their marrow is struggling, like they have a, a macrocytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, leukopenia, you may be worried about marrow involvement, and that can that can tip you off that this may be a more advanced stage cancer. Definitely also want to look at other sort of end organ dysfunctions, so send off your analysis, a CMP, and then you can, if you have enough suspicion, start sending off some tumor markers just because we know we need tissue to make the diagnosis, but oftentimes it can be it can be a little while until that procedure is able to be performed or until you get those results back from pathology. So if you have a high suspicion clinically for prostate cancer, sending off a PSA and sort of confirming what you think is going on, that can be something that you want to do. And going along with that, I think it's really important for us to really define that there are certain tumor markers that are useful, like the PSA, and certain tumor markers that are non-specific. And we'll get to that as we go through this discussion a little bit more. But bottom line is we have this initial workup. So Ronak, where do you go from here? What are your thoughts? Well, it's kind of crazy how many different types of cancers there are. And I'm learning more and more about that as I kind of progress through my solid oncology rotation. You know, every day I feel like I'm learning a, a new type of cancer and I'm like, this is a thing, but I guess it is a thing. And what I found more and more to become my new best friend is really acquainting myself with the NCCN guidelines. And so this is a website that I learned about when I first started fellowship and these are guidelines for workup and management of different types of cancers. And the workup portion is huge, especially 
you know, as the fellow that's seeing these patients when they're, you know, have this undifferentiated mass, it provides insight as to when to send tumor markers, when to send certain types of labs, what type of imaging to do. And so, you know, oftentimes the kind of important imaging modalities that are discussed are things like getting a CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Some of these guidelines will often request PET scans to look at that. Sometimes there's mention of MRIs. I was just curious, guys, especially for the the, the PET scan, like how important is a PET scan? I know that in the hospital at Rouleau, you know, sometimes we can get them done in the hospital. But when I was in residency, it was very hard to get a PET scan done as an inpatient. So how important is it? And what is really the utility of a PET scan that and what information do you glean from that that you can't get from like a CT or an MRI? I'll start off with just going with the clinical side. And then I'm going to let Dan explain to us what is a PET scan and the fact that we have many different types of PET scans available nowadays. So clinically, sometimes some cancers will light up on a PET scan, just in a simple explanation, and some of them won't. And you don't always need the PET scan, but it can be more sensitive in finding smaller metastatic sites. And there are certain tumors that will that you'll be able to get better diag- better staging information with the PET scan, but you don't necessarily need that. Oftentimes, a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis with contrast is sufficient. There are times that you'll see patients who aren't able to get that contrast. We see these patients all the time in the hospital. They have CKD or they came in with a bad AKI and you don't want to make that worse by giving them iodine. And in those cases, you can do something like an MRI. Uh, and, And sometimes an MRI abdomen, pelvis or MRI chest, abdomen, pelvis, while it seems like a weird test to order, can be a good staging scan in those cases. And the last thing I want to say about imaging before I pass it off to Dan is there's some cancers that you can diagnose solely on imaging. Two of those that come to example, one of them is hepatocellular carcinoma. You can do a special CT liver protocol or get an MRI of the abdomen to diagnose that. And also renal cell carcinoma, same concept applies, a CT with contrast or an MRI protocol that can allow you to just make a diagnosis without even getting a biopsy. But Dan, tell us a little bit more about how PET scan works and and the different types of PET scans. Sure. So these days, when we get a PET, it almost always comes with a CT as well, a conventional CT. And uh, the CT is generally a little lower quality than the CT that you would usually get for CT abdomen pelvis, but it still gives you good anatomic detail. And what's so powerful about PET is that it adds another dimension onto what you're looking at. You still get the same 3D anatomic information that you get from a CT scan, and you layer on top of it information about the metabolic activity of the tissues, at least in the case of the FDG PET that we're, that we're using in the majority of, of cancer workups. So what, is, what does any of that stand for? FDG is fluorodeoxyglucose. So it's a sugar molecule that has a radiolabeled fluorine on it or a radioactive fluorine attached to it. The reason we use that is because, you know, as you know, sugar is a, a fundamental fuel source for almost all of our cells. And we infuse that FDG radio tracer into people. The cells take it up because it's essentially just a glucose molecule as far as the cell is concerned. And cells that are using more energy than the cells around them will take up more of that radio tracer as a result. That allows us to see areas that are hot or or using more energy. And and that could be because of malignancy. It could be because of infection or even healing wounds. Really interestingly, we've actually seen a lot of pet 
avidity or sort of take uptake of that FDG tracer in uh, axillary lymph nodes in patients who are getting their PET scan for clinical care and also have recently gotten a COVID vaccine. I found that really fascinating. It's like, hey, look, it's working. And so, uh, you know, just to get a little bit further into the weeds here, PET stands for positron emission tomography. And what that means is that this radio tracer, it emits a positron, which is the antimatter equivalent of an electron. And as soon as that encounters an electron, and there's no shortage of electrons in your body, right, it will annihilate. But this is a really tiny mass, so we're not talking about like full-on nuclear explosion. Instead, a photon is ejected in, uh, two photons are ejected in practically 180 degree angles, which allows the detector to figure out where that signal came from. It's still not as good a spatial resolution as CT. You can see things that are about, you know, half a centimeter in size or larger, but it's way better than a lot of our older nuclear medicine technologies. And as Vivek referenced, when we're doing PET these days, there are a lot more options than just FDG. So uh, there's some groups on the West Coast doing prostate cancer-specific type of PET scan, where the radio tracer is attached to something that hones into prostate tissue. And more commonly across the country, we're doing certain scans to look for neuroendocrine tumors, things like carcinoids and and other pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. They'll light up with a, a different type of radio tracer. So it's a pretty powerful platform and kind of expanding the number of uses that we have for it. But what I'm taking away from that is that you need to have a good index of suspicion that the type of cancer you're looking or going after rather is going to have FDG avidity going talking about a conventional PET scan because, you know, doing a PET scan on every person that walks into the door is not going to be clinically useful because it does go to sites of inflammation essentially. That's exactly right. And it has its weaknesses. You know, there are areas in the body that have a really high background metabolic activity. Think about your brain. Your your brain uses a ton of glucose. So it's hard to see things through that baseline level. The same goes for the heart. And to some extent, the intestines, there are certain areas in the intestines that will have a lot of baseline metabolic activity. And, And when you're looking through PET scans, you know, it obviously takes a lot of training to read these things because you can you can kind of psych yourself out that you're seeing something that may not even be there. So it's very important to consult with your you know nuclear medicine radiologist in, in looking through these scans. Definitely good to know. So just to bring us back to this case, you know, getting a PET scan for this guy was quite difficult in the hospital. So we had recommended doing the CT chest, ab- abdomen, and pelvis. And so in addition to the right upper lobe mass that we had seen, we also happened to notice some more right axillary lymphadenopathy, and unfortunately also look like what may be some liver lesions as well. And so, you know, the next step from here, now that we know that he's got disease that extends beyond just the chest, is we got to get some tissue. And so then the the follow-up question to their consult became, well, what do we biopsy and how do we do it and who do we look to next? So here I am asking you all, what is your approach to answering this question? I think the biggest thing to know is that you always want to upstage the patient when you're thinking about a biopsy. So that's one really, really important principle. What that means is in this patient, clearly this patient has a big lung mass. We have a high suspicion that this patient has lung cancer that probably spread outside the lung with this axillary node and these liver metastases. But if we just biopsy that lung mass, we don't know the extent of the disease. We're not positive that those liver metastases are the lung cancer. We have a high suspicion it is, but we don't know. 
So that's why it's always important to get a biopsy that will upstage your cancer. And when you're thinking about what to biopsy, thinking about what's the easiest thing to biopsy. You don't want to put the patient through a difficult procedure. Let's say, for example, this patient had a had some retroperitoneal adenopathy or something by the aorta. You wouldn't go for the lymph node by the aorta. You'd go for that easy axillary lymph node. So you always want to biopsy something that will upstage the patient because it affects treatment management and it's the biggest bang for your buck. And when we think about that, there's multiple team members that can do this. Oftentimes you have, nowadays, interventional radiology is great at it. But if you have something close to the surface and you're just needing something like an FNA and, and go back and listen to our, our previous episode, episode five, uh, that really talks about these different biopsies to get more information about this. But a pathologist can do the FNA right at the bedside. And remember that in solid tumors, and if we're worried about a solid tumor, we can get that diagnosis just on that FNA. And so that's something that we can definitely do. And, and in this patient, I would, I would try to biopsy that axillary lymph node. Just it's, it's easier to biopsy in the liver. Uh, it's something that we can do with, with, uh, with possibly our interventional radiologist doing an ultrasound guided biopsy or something like that. And again, you don't need to get an excisional biopsy if, unless you have that index of suspicion for lymphoma. And another case that I'd seen that's similar, and I think Vivek, this is kind of alluding to something that you just said that prompted this, is that people can have more than one thing wrong with them. So, you know, unfortunately in this guy, he does have a significant history of, of, of tobacco use. And so we know that tobacco predisposes patients to all sorts of different malignancies. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to have two different primaries. And we just need to be conscious of that as well as we are working these patients up. It's true. I had a patient myself who came in with a very large lung mass and we saw liver lesions as well. He ended up getting a biopsy of the lung mass because he actually needed a stent put into his, his bronchus to keep his air moving. The mass was so large. And that came back as a pdl one high lung cancer. And we'll talk a little bit about that, what that means in future episodes. But suffice to say, he had, a, he had a lung cancer that had not spread. And when we biopsied the liver, he had colon cancer there. And now that sounds worse to have two, two cancers, but in his case, it was actually better. It meant that instead of an incurable lung cancer, he had two curable cancers, which was a pretty impressive turn of events. So you never really know until you look. Dan, something you said at the start of this episode was talking a little bit about tumor markers. And so when you have an index of suspicion based on the location of a mass, sometimes tumor markers can be helpful, but they're not diagnostic unless you have some more data and the data being the biopsy. But, you know, as we know, the biopsy results can sometimes take several days, if not, you know, about a week to come back, depending on on where you are and whether the pathologists are in-house. And so what are some common tumor markers that we can consider using uh, almost as, you know, kind of a litmus test for trying to figure out what kind of cancer we may be dealing with in the appropriate clinical context, that is? And I think the way that I really think about it is that there's no definite way to diagnose a cancer by just using these tumor markers, that the tumor markers are really meant as a baseline and something for treatment monitoring purposes, because intra-abdominal malignancies you're thinking of with CA-99 and CEA, and there are false positives for many reasons, and many different types of cancers, whether they are intra-abdominal or not, can produce these tumor markers. So they're incredibly nonspecific. And and the, the one that Dan mentioned that's so important is thinking about the PSA 
and an older gentleman who comes in with with bone lesions. Just get the PSA because it can give you a lot of information and, and that can really aid in your differential diagnosis. A couple other things for me is somebody who, let's say, has cirrhosis and they have a liver mass, getting something like an AFP is reasonable. And then the last thing is a younger male or a middle-aged male who I suspect testicular cancer in. And just so everybody knows, and I don't think I really knew this for an extremely long time, testicular cancer commonly presents in the media sinus in the lungs. So if you have a, a young gentleman or a middle-aged person coming in with some mediastinal mass going on, it's it's reasonable to get an AFP and a beta HCG if you're thinking about testicular cancer. So those are the three times: PSA for prostate cancer, bone lesions, AFP if somebody has underlying liver disease and you think they have hepatocellular carcinoma, and then if you if you see a young guy with some lung mass and you're worried about testicular cancer, getting an AFP and a beta HCG can be helpful. Other than that, though, these tumor markers aren't going to help you in this cancer of origin TBD diagnosis. Following up to that, though, what about like molecular testing? Do you go ahead and send that, you know, while we're waiting for the biopsy to come back? Or is there a more appropriate time to be doing that at a later date? Oftentimes, molecular testing will be sent as a part of the, the biopsy workup on the, on the tissue itself. But even if you're in a situation when you can't uh, get tissue or you're having, a, having difficulty obtaining a biopsy, there are certain companies out there that are developing technology looking at cell-free DNA, which is essentially DNA that's shed from tumor cells as they live and die in the person's body. And that DNA can be picked up in the peripheral blood and, and analyzed for certain mutations that can either help identify tissue of origin or more commonly help prognosticate and identify particular targets for treatment. Definitely really good to know. Now, you know, just to kind of bring us back to this case. So as I mentioned, he had this widespread adenopathy, the mediastinal involvement. He had the obviously the mass in the lung, the liver lesions. We did end up going after the axillary lesions, just given the ease of getting that biopsy relative to some of the other sites. And unfortunately, it did look like adenocarcinoma of the lung. The question then became, what is this gentleman's prognosis? And I have a really hard time answering this question. I don't know what your general approach to this conversation is. But again, this is something that comes up all the time. And I just was hoping to hear how you typically approach this situation. Yeah, this is a great question, and I think it's the reason why, as oncologists and as oncology fellows, sometimes we do push back because this conversation is really tough to have, mainly because we often don't have enough information to give a very good estimate of prognosis. Prognostication is one of the toughest things to do in oncology. For this patient, for example, there are a lot of factors that we still don't know. The molecular testing that Dan had talked about that will be sent on the tumor sample and and in the future with this cell-free DNA that we're hoping it gets faster and more optimized, that information can help us. We've talked about in previous episodes that targeted treatments, prognostication with the gene expression profile is so important, and we don't have that information yet. And when we're talking to these patients, it could go from saying that, hey, you have something on the order of months to maybe a year to live that could change that if he had a good target that we say, hey, maybe actually we're looking on more of definitely several months to possibly even several years of treatment. Other things come to mind is we'll see some of these patients that may have oligometastatic disease, meaning that, as Dan mentioned before, 
throughout this discussion is that he had that patient who had uh, colon cancer that spread to the liver and that could be curable. You know, it's so hard for us to know until we get the biopsy back. And oftentimes we're lucky in this case that we did get the diagnosis, but sometimes these patients are well enough to go home and we don't have that diagnosis yet. So we can't tell them that, hey, you have an oligometastatic or only one site of metastatic disease with a colon cancer, we think we can cure you. We don't have all that information yet. So when we talk to these patients, we don't even know if we are going to say, hey, you need chemotherapy, you need immune therapy, you need targeted therapy or a combination of some of those things. So it's really difficult. But really, my approach is just to say, hey, unfortunately, we have this cancer. And once it's spread, in many cases, we say, you know, I wish I could cure it, but I can't. And my goal is to give you as much quality life as possible, but I'd need more time to get some of that information. And and we see those patients in clinic. And it is essential for us to be involved so that we can see them in clinic. And we understand why primary teams that are helping work these patients up reach out to us to have these conversations. You know, you talk to oncology patients and many of them will tell you that the hardest time in the course of their cancer experience is the time between finding out that they probably have a cancer and figuring out what the plan is going to be to take care of it. Imagine that's just got to be a horrible situation to be in. So, you know, we, we sympathize with that and, and some providers out there can empathize with that, but it doesn't unfortunately give us any additional information to give. And and we can only, we don't want to give inaccurate information so we can only work with what we got. Absolutely. Yeah. No, this is, this is such a good reminder just all around, not only of workup, but again, how to, how to frame these conversations. So, you know, I just want to kind of summarize uh, the case and kind of our discussion that we had today, because I think it was a really good one. Essentially, in this gentleman that came in with this large mass noted on imaging when he presented to the ER, we subsequently, you know, did some baseline blood work just to make sure that his counts were okay, to make sure his renal function was okay before we considered any additional imaging. We highlighted the importance of getting additional imaging as being super crucial to us better figuring out the extent of disease, allowing us to then determine this patient's stage of disease. Often, guidance about what type of imaging is necessary can be obtained from resources like the NCCN guidelines, which spell out exactly what type of imaging should be done or considered in different clinical scenarios. And then we talked a little bit about getting a biopsy, trying to find the areas that are going to upstage the patient to give them the maximum amount of therapy that would be therapeutic and beneficial for them, but kind of ensuring that we are also being realistic about what we're targeting that's safest for the patient that's also going to give us an answer. And then ultimately, once we have that biopsy result, considering doing molecular testing on it to look for targetable mutations. And then lastly, we kind of highlighted the importance of getting additional tumor markers, not necessarily as diagnostic things, but potentially as just supporting evidence, essentially, in the right clinical context. And also that a lot of these markers are maybe good to have as a baseline once we've established a diagnosis. But in lieu of us imaging everybody every time they come into the office, we can use some of these markers in order to assess response to treatment. Does that sound like an accurate summary of what we just discussed? That was beautiful. Per usual. Per usual. Renek's the best. It comes with having to do this, you know, 
15 to 20 times coming up with summaries on a daily basis. We get a lot of consults, guys. So I'm trying to, you know, make sure that we're, we're on top of it. Yeah. Repetition is key as I'm learning more and more. So I, I think that just about wraps up our episode here. Um, I, you know, I, I want to thank you guys. This was a fantastic discussion, in my opinion, about a question that we see quite often. And my hope is that our listeners can walk away with just good guidance about when they eventually are going to get a consult like this where, when they're in the hospital. So any final thoughts, guys? Not for me, other than Dan's an excellent chef. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Drink more wine. <laughs> wise words from dan Housewrath. <laughs> all right guys well then thank you so much for chatting with me today and listeners thanks for joining us and until next time we'll see you later see you later peace